Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists and writers, policymakers and performers to hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, and what relationships influenced their work. Here's the thing. Both of my guests today were successful early in their careers. Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass sold over 13 million albums in 1966, outselling even the Beatles. After leaving Saturday Night Live, Chris Rock created two comedy specials, the second of which won two Emmys. Who's more racist, black people or white people? Black people. You know why? Because we hate black people too. Now, usually when an entertainer finds success at something, it guarantees you'll see them do that same thing over and over again. But both Herb Alpert and Chris Rock have taken their careers well beyond the expected. Alpert started what became the largest independent music label of its time. And recently, Chris Rock starred in his first play ever on Broadway. Great, man, you're on the precipice of something beautiful. Come and stay with me and Vicky, man. Get on a nutritional beverage program, man. <laughs> Come out to Rockaway, man. Go to meet. I wanted my acting to grow. So I'm actually figuring out how to ad-lib every night without saying words. How to work each scene a little different and each line and try to find laughs in places that I didn't find one the night before. So the play was The Motherfucker with the Hat. I met up with Chris in his attic dressing room at the Schoenfeld Theater after a Wednesday matinee. Broadway is not where you'd expect to find Chris Rock. He sells out stadiums. His stand-up routines are merciless. He leaves no time for recovery. Your sides ache with laughter from both shock and recognition. Married and bored are single and lonely. That's right. That's right. Marriage is some boring because once you get married, you got to hang around other married people. And that's just disgusting. 
You ever go to dinner with six neutered adults? A bunch of women talking about diaper genies and hair coloring? You know, if you leave it in too long, it stings. Shut the f*** up. You have, obviously, a huge following black and white in your concerts. And yet when you go out in this audience, how black is the audience? Well, I mean, put it this way. In the old days, they used to have signs up, whites only, whites only. Now they have a new thing. It's called prices. You know, some nights it's darker than other nights. I buy tickets every night. When this play is over, I will... You spend your weekly paycheck on tickets for people? I will have spent... Almost a whole weekly paycheck on tickets. As gifts for friends. As gifts for Who otherwise friends. couldn't come see the show. Who otherwise could not afford to see the show. I tour, and I'm normally, you know, at the garden or whatever. I have like 60,000 seats to give away when I'm normally on sure. tour. And people have gotten used to this. My man takes care of us. Yeah. And, you know, I, don't, I can't take that away from <laughs> friends and family. You haven't done a lot of theater, correct? This is the first play I've ever done. This is the first play you've ever done. I didn't do a play in high school. I didn't go to high school. So. Uh, So not only your Broadway debut, but your first play, period, you're with a pretty cool group of people. I'm an amazing. With a lot of experience. You know what? And they have held me up. No one ever got frustrated at what I didn't know. You know, because this is a bunch of little things that people take for granted. I have no idea. Such as? You're never supposed to walk straight at somebody. You're supposed to loop. Just all these weird little things. Yeah, my favorite is you don't give information to the person. So if you're standing here telling them something, you tell it out. You sit there and go, open, open, open to the audience as much as possible. All, All that open, 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 open stuff. Yes. Even today I'm working on it. The Chris Rock that I know from your live shows, I don't see much of him in this show. Because that Chris Rock is like marauding the stage and has complete control over the audience. This is a different Chris I see in the play. I'm really trying to act here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Have you enjoyed it? I'm enjoying it a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. What was the rehearsal like? The rehearsal was the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life. I always tell people it's like having the Empire State Building shoved up your ass one brick at a time. Yeah. and you To learn the play. Can't believe there's ever going to be a day when you know these lines. What's been the surprise about doing this for you? Honestly, I'm surprised I'm doing it. I mean, I'm surprised that I'm not bored with it already. Mm-hmm. Are you afraid of that? I'm really, that, that, what's the, that's the biggest fear, to actually be stuck doing anything. <laughs> well, what I love about this play, by the way, everybody has loved someone. And not too far into the relationship, you say to yourself, uh, not only is this probably wrong, this is uh, definitely wrong, but you can't get out of it. How does this play resonate with you in your personal life? I've been every person in this play. Ah! <laughs> There's you not have. a person the in betrayer, this play. The betrayer, the betrayed. Yeah. Everything. Everything. And it's the, the one who f***ed the other person in response to the betrayal. Yeah, yeah. The revenge the- I'm every person in the play. Every person in the play. It's the kind of play you can't watch without putting yourself in it. When you write your material for stand-up, how do the people in your life react to how you fillet them on stage, if you will? Uh, You know what? I'm like a lawyer, in a sense. I mean, it's it's almost like a legal document. (laughs) It's all worded like it's all our wives and all Mm. our family. You know what I mean? It's like like if if I gave you the transcript, you'd be like, he hasn't talked about anybody. Yeah, right. 
It That's all, not you, baby. It would all hold up in court. Right. You're safe. <laughs> but, you do, but you never have anybody in your life. No, no. Everybody's uncomfortable. I, I remember I read a quote Tarantino said, if people in your life aren't uncomfortable, you're not really writing. You're not really hitting it. You know, so somebody better be uncomfortable. Did you grow up in a situation that was remotely like this? In an emotionally, an emotionally uh, turbulent no. environment? No, my parents... Put it this way. My mother cursed a lot, screamed a lot. Yeah. You know, my father... My mother beat us with a curtain rod. Yeah, my, you know, we got beatings with curtain rods and brooms and brushes. Hangers. And hangers, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, my father... It's weird. My father... His temper towards my mother was always controlled. Right. What else he could lose it? Yeah, why do you think that was? <laughs> he wanted to protect that. I don't know. I mean, first of all, I mean, guys from that era did not view women as their equals. They did. Right. And they were loving, loving and blah, 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 blah. But they did not view women as their equals. Therefore, they could actually deal with the woman's emotional whatever swings way easier than a guy my age because I view a woman as my equal. Right. So if I'm with a woman and she starts crying, I look at her like I'm with you and you start crying. I say to women, well, don't go female on me. I'm like, something. I look at her like I would look at a guy that gets emotional. Yeah, I thought if we're equal, then you can't play that card. Right. Don't play the female card. So I'll just say my father and my grandfathers, both of them, were really delicate <laughs> with their wives. You know, not a child, but close to a child. How's it different for you? My wife's my equal. And, you know, you know, any butting of heads is because right. I I want I'm dealing with you the same way I would deal with myself or I deal with any guy. And we're both wrong. What are you gonna do when this is over, do you know? I'm not sure. I think I'm gonna direct a movie. That's what I'm feeling. So this is the time in your life when you do all the things you told yourself you'd never do. Play on Broadway, direct a movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm Why thrilled. do you want to direct a movie? I don't know. I, is this your Warren Beatty phase? That's why you're watching Woody Allen? Yeah, or? I don't know. I mean, put it this way. If I can get a great director to direct me, I'll do it. But once, once you mean, get you to wrote? The, yeah. Once, once you get to the C-list, you might as well do it yourself. That's what I say. Mm. Yeah. How picky are you about the films you do? Because you don't do a lot of film. Um, I don't know. I mean... I turn down a lot, but I don't have a list of great films I've turned down. Do you turn down, regardless of whether they're great or not, do you turn them down because for you, you always have the stand-up thing in your pocket and the concert thing in your pocket? You're not in any hurry to go out and make a living. Most movies suck, man. They really suck. See, I'm, I'm messed up because I like to see something I haven't seen or haven't seen with a black person. Black people in film is still at its, really at its infant stage. And... Why do you think that? I don't know. You know what? Here's the thing. You know, you hand a studio person a script. And sometimes the studio people are good. 99% of the time when you hand somebody a script, they pick a person in the movie that they identify with. So if you hand a woman a script, if the woman's got nine lines in the movie, the first person she gives you notes about is the woman. And if you hand the boss the script, he's going to give you notes about the main character. And if you hand his assistant the script, he's going to give you notes about some other... Everybody figures out who they are in the movie. 
Now, when you hand somebody a black script, they don't relate to anybody in this. <laughs> Even that's a very good point. I, no, I'm serious. Even when it's and when you the have most, an executive who does relate to a black person in the script, what does that mean to you? You struck gold. No, well, it's, I, it's never really gold? happened. They just uh, never. They're making a product all of a sudden. That's what I've experienced. And when you do because I mean, there's no black studios or whatever, so you end up. You always end up with just a person trying to make a piece of product. They might as well be potato making, chips. They might as well be making an iPad. They're in the really. potato chip business, as far yeah, as I'm concerned. Yeah, they're kind of in the potato, potato chip business. Yeah. But you seem to me, because you're so smart and so clever, that you have as much of a white audience as you do a black audience. Don't you think so? Yeah, yeah. In spite of the fact your stand-up can be pretty tough on white people. Yeah, but I always say my stand-up's like Chinese food. And what's Chinese food? Well, Chinese food is one of the most popular foods in all of America. And they don't put American on their menus. Right. People really want Chinese food. Yeah. They don't put yeah. French fries yeah. and grilled cheese. Grilled cheese yeah. on the menu of <laughs> right. the most so you, popular so you're the restaurant. the Chinese food of people, black comedy. So I'm just saying, when people see... When people come to Chris's restaurant, they want they, Chris's menu. They want Chris's menu. It's the guy that tries to cross over that gets less white people, I find. Do you think the appeal to you with a black audience is how much you have fun with white commentary? Do you think your black audience expects you to do that when they come see you? They expect me to do it, yeah. Ah, uh, what am I trying to say here? First of all, all the materials run by run through black it's actually it's run, it's, <laughs> it's run, by, it's run through black by a people. Commission. Actually, first is run through Jews. <laughs> I always work out the material in West Palm Beach. Right. No, get out of here. <laughs> I go to West Palm Beach. And guess what? They show up. I play a little club. So I figure I'm in front of these people. They're a little older. If I can get them to laugh at this, when I get in front of the black people, they're going to go zerk. And then I get in front of the black people. I make some adjustments here and there. And this is all before I put, like, the garden or something on sale. So it's these two very different groups I work it out in front of. How old are you now? <laughs> I'm 46. You're 46. 46, man. Which means... I'm 53. Dude, and you old. started. And you started? I started probably five, seven years before I got on SNL. But I always say I haven't been, you know, I haven't been poor a day since I met Lauren Michaels. Right. And I never me been neither. broke. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of his stuff sticks with me. One thing he said to me is like, everybody loses their first money. Yeah. Now, if you're talented, you'll it's, make it's, some I more. I can't believe he said that. <laughs> you're so, you're so, he's so right. He knows more about, let's take a moment to talk about the wisdom of Lorne Michaels. Oh, he knows. Like uh, he's always there to remind you how you can lose perspective about yes. this business, or at least in my case, I can no, lose no, perspective. No, 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 he's very good. With but how much have things changed in your mind? And not just for you, but for you specifically, but in the business. I don't know about you. I find the business a lot smaller. Uh, in what way? Less movies, less, I mean. Less stuff that relates to me. Put this way. You know what? Less stuff that relates to me. Yeah. I'll say that. For the young people. You know, this whole reality thing, I'm not going to dismiss it. You know, sound like it's some old person talking about rap music. It's not going to last. <laughs> you know what I mean? But... But do you think At the same you, time, I don't get it. Do you think you'd make it today? Yeah. If you came in today? Yeah. yeah. Me and Sandler, we, that's our little test with each other. We kind of, we assess the stand-ups, 
Yeah. Yeah, you still got it. I still got it. Yeah, I keep the weight off a little bit. You know, that's what I'm trying to do. (laughs) Dude. Bon Jovi. Still doing it. Still doing it. Still doing it. Still doing it, man. Just look hot. Just try to look hot to somebody. How many kids you have now? I got two. What are you worried about raising your kids in this world? I care that they're good with money. I don't even care if they're assholes. When I say good with money, I just mean you got $2 and you spend one and you put a dollar in the back. I don't mean that they run Microsoft or they mm-hmm. flip money and buy houses. I just mean... Does that come from your childhood? Be, yes, it comes from my childhood. Same with me. I just mean, can they handle their own money? That's it. Because... Because it's a tough hole to get out of. It t- it's a tough now hole to get ever. out of, and it's a weird hole for a pretty woman to get out of. And they end up in relationships with guys they wouldn't have relationship with. There's a great line that Anthony Quinn has in Lawrence of Arabia where he says, I am a river to my people. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of that now. You're you're like that. Well, here's the thing. You can only help. Like, I got some family right now. Guy, whatever, losing his house, whatever. I'm going to help him move into wherever he's going to move into. I'm not buying his house. Because he's never going to be able to afford the house. Right. So, yeah, I, my, I'm a river, but... It's a little river. It's a little river. Because yeah. when you turn down somebody and they know you have the money... Yeah. There's one thing to go, these kids are kicking my ass or whatever, and you don't have the money. They know you have yeah. the money. Yeah. So, so it's, it's almost like a woman go. It's like, I know you have vagina and you have sex. You just don't want to have it yeah. with me. Right. <laughs> it's right. like. I remember I used to do a movie and they'd say to me in whatever way, what would come back was, uh, we don't have the money for that. And what they really were saying was, we don't have the money for that for you. For you. For you, we don't. We got it for Leo. We have the exactly. If Leo wants it, for Leo, we're going to sell our houses to get Leo to come. But for you, we don't have the money. We do not. And that's what you're saying to people in your life: is I don't have the money for you. I don't have the money for you. For you, you're not going to be the reason I'm doing some bad kung fu movie. Okay. I got one last (laughs) question for you. When you're home, and you really want to relax, what do you like to watch? Like, what's entertainment to you? You know, it's probably Woody. Why? Just about Amy Woody. What do you love about Amy? <laughs> gets me like. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Amy Woody? Just about, man. I mean, put it this way the average great filmmaker, great, has about four good movies, right? Yeah. Woody has about 12. Yeah, Lou Woody has a dozen <laughs> great movies. You know what I mean? Like, doesn't he? Like, great, and then he probably yeah. has about 10 more really good really? ones. Exactly. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> So that's the dream, is to be in a Woody film. That is really, really, I love the guy. It's not too late. Of course it's not too late. What are you crazy? Maybe one day. (laughs) Woody Allen is now in pre-production for his next movie. No word yet if Chris Rock will be joining the cast. Dude, I just want to hang on a set. I just want to, like, what happens? Coming up, legendary musician and record producer Herb Alpert. In the 60s, the Tijuana Brass, we played some college affairs in uh, Upper California. Woody Allen opened the show for us as a stand-up comic. No. Yeah. Hey, Chris, eventually everyone ends up working with Woody, so don't give up hope. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. This is it. 
your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. If you were listening to the radio in 1966, it was a true hodgepodge of what was then considered popular music. And right up there with the Supremes and Simon and Garfunkel and Frank Sinatra and even the Beatles was this guy. Yes, that signature Tijuana brass sound. Herb Alpert had no Latin roots, but wanted to recreate the sound he'd heard at the bullfights in Tijuana. When he overdubbed his trumpet on two different tape machines, he captured it. And he captured more than that. Whipped Cream and Other Delights was the number one album in the country in 1965, remaining on the charts for three years. I started playing when I was eight, and I was earning a living on weekends playing. I love playing. What happened when you were eight? Well, uh... What had you seen or heard that made you say, I want to pick up a trumpet and start playing? Well, yeah, I was really fortunate. In my uh, elementary school, they had a, a band appreciation class, and they had this table filled with various instruments, and I was able to just 
pick one up and... Where were you going to school then? Melrose Elementary School in Los Angeles, <laughs> yeah. And what did your dad do? <laughs> Ladies' coats and suits. Yeah. Yeah, that was... He's, he's in the clothing business. He was in the clothing business. He was a Schneider, you know. My brother was a professional drummer. My sister played uh, piano, mother violin, and my dad played uh, mandolin by ear. So your parents were musical. Very musical. But it wasn't their profession. No, not at all. What did your parents think about when you were so devoted to music? Were they discouraging you of doing that, or they encouraged you? My dad wasn't so crazy about it. He thought, what do you want to play in sawdust pits the rest of your life? That was his image of it. At the time, he didn't know it, but Alpert was only just beginning an extraordinary career as a musician, eventually earning five number one hits, eight Grammys, 14 platinum albums, and 15 gold. However, those achievements might be seen as a prelude to his later career as a music producer. We've only just begun to In 1962, with his friend Jerry Moss, Alpert founded what would become the world's largest independent record label, A&M Records. They signed such artists as The Carpenters, Sheryl Crow, Janet Jackson, and The Police. Rocks. Alpert and Moss started the whole thing with 200 bucks and a handshake, ultimately selling A&M to Polygram Records in 1990 for half a billion dollars. Herb Alpert is 78 now, and he's still as handsome as ever. But although he's always had matinee idol looks, he never took up acting. Let me tell you something. When I was in high school, I was working at a gym. This agent came up to me and said, man, you look like you should be in the movies. So I said, well... What can you do for me? He set me up with the people at Paramount. I auditioned. They said I was a little green. So I started taking lessons. I studied with Jeff Corey and also Leonard Nimoy. And I realized I didn't have it. I'm passionate about playing the horn. What's the music scene like in Los Angeles then for a young guy who wants to play? Well, it was quite different. It was Shaboom, Shaboom, 60-Minute Man and those type of songs yeah. that were kind of popular at the time. I had a great experience, though. I was partners with Lou Adler at the time. How did you become partners with him? Well, he was dating my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hollywood. Yeah. I forgot we're talking about L.A. <laughs> yeah. Lou was writing poetry, and I started writing some, some you know, music to his poetry. And He's kind of a knock-on-every-door type of guy, and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the shy one. So we got this job at Keen Records in Los Angeles and started working for Bumps Blackwell, who was the producer for Sam Cooke. And Lou and I became really close friends with Sam Cooke. We wrote uh, Wonderful World together yeah, with him. Right. He was really special. He had something very unusual. He was a very unpretentious guy, but very elegant. What did he teach you? Sam had this number one record, You Send Me. Sure. And his follow-up was, uh, I love you for sentimental reasons. And so the owner of this company that I was working for was like an amateur piano player. So Sam was recording, goes into the control room and starts listening to a playback. I was there with this owner. And the owner walks up to Sam and says, Sam, you know, in bar 12, 
you can put in a wo-wo. And in bar 35, you can put in another wo You know, he had the sheet music. And Sam looked at the guy and says, Jack? Yeah, just put in a wo-wo whenever you want, man. you got to feel it. Yeah. He says, man, you're listening to a cold piece of wax, and it either makes it or it don't. You know, he, he broke it right down to the yeah. nub. For me, what's interesting about your career is not just virtuosic musicianship, but you go on to become a very serious and like incredibly successful producer. Did you feel when you met those people, did you have that skill as well? Oh, no. I didn't have any skills. You didn't? <laughs> no, <laughs> Producing-wise? No, producing-wise, I, I didn't even think about it. I had an experience at a place uh, called the Annex in Los Angeles, a recording studio, and I was watching a reasonably famous producer, producer record. So the musicians are rehearsing. Plaz Johnson was a saxophone player. He was the saxophone player that played on the Pink Panther. For Mancini. Yeah. They rehearsed. Plaz played this incredible solo. The producer gets on the horn and says, okay, Plaz, beautiful. Just play the same thing again. And Plaz said, what do you mean? He said, just play that solo again. I love that. He says, did you record it? He says, no, but you know what you, know what you did. Just play it again. I thought, well... I can do this. This is... Uh, right. Always be rolling. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I always do that. Always be rolling. Oh, yeah. Now, great success for you with Tijuana Brass and great success for you recording albums. And When does producing become something, if ever, that was as important to you? I mean, A&M is not some mom-and-pop shop. You and Moss set up a huge company that you sold to Polygram for an enormous amount of money. Because you strike me as a guy that's is a real artist. You're painting and you're sculpting and you're playing music. When, when does it start to really take over the business side in A&M? Well, uh, you know, I surround... Would you let Jerry do that? Well, exactly. And I surround myself with, uh, you know, really quality people, that, people that can do things that I can't. And I'm a right brain guy. You know, I'm, I'm 85% on the right side of my brain, so... Business is, uh, was always a little funny for me. You know, I, Jerry and I always discussed the big, broad s stroke of A&M, but, uh, you know, the little incidental things that happen on a daily basis I wasn't interested in. Front of the house, back of the house. Yeah, exactly. What was it about Jerry that you think it lasted so long and was so successful? He's just a really good guy. He's an honest, he has a lot of integrity. He doesn't lie. Sounds strange, but we never had a contract. Jerry and I had A&M on a handshake. Yeah. And the only time we ever signed a contract was when we sold to Polygram. Now, during that period when you're producing, I know nothing about how records are made, which must be just completely unrecognizable now from what it was back in 65, you know, technically. Oh, oh completely. Yeah. I did an album called Whip, we rip, we whipped, you know. Re-whipped. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm your PR man. Thank you. The guy who got the uh, concept for this album, you know, got a bunch of young producers together to redo the Whipped Cream and Other Delights album. So they sent me music files on a CD or on a DVD or through the net. I would put my trumpet on, put the trumpet on a CD because it's all time-coded, send the CD back to them. They would slip it right into their master recordings. And I never met these guys. I spoke to one that... The I, ultimate internet dating. These guys could have been in Afghanistan, and it would have yeah. worked the same way. Yeah. 
My first recorder was a wire recorder. I had a webcore <laughs> wire recorder. So if you wanted to, you know, intercut some things, you need a soldering iron. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel that all this technology and all of uh, uh, the power that comes with that, has it made people lazy? Like people can't get in a room and they just can't play a song all the way through anymore? No, I don't think it makes them lazy. I think it gives them too many options. I think it takes some of the, uh, the heart away. Yeah, I mean, I, I also wonder, people say, what's the difference between you know, theater and film? And the, more and more, the technical cost of these highly technical fields, whether it's filmmaking, television, recorded music, it's expensive, and so they want everybody... It's almost to the point now where they don't care how you feel about the experience. Because <laughs> I'll stand there and I'll say, well, I want to do another take, man, and I want to feel it, you know? I want to do this whole speech on page two... All the way to the bottom of page four, it's like a ski run. I want to ski that hill all the way to the bottom <laughs> without falling. And everybody looks at you and goes, we don't have time for that, <laughs> yeah, man. No. we oh, got yeah. to get out of here. Yeah, I can That's the way the music business is now? No, I don't think so. I mean, it depends on you know, what artists you're talking about. Who's someone that you recorded that you sat there and you were like, wow, man, this is really a thrill for me as an artist to watch this man or woman get Well, going. there are a lot of, I mean, we yeah, have must be. incredible artists. With Name a couple that you dug the most. Cat Stevens was wow. unusually special. Now I've been happy lately Thinking about the good things to come And I believe it could be Something good has begun Cat has something magical. You guys signed him. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, he was so passionate and so, you know, the, the lyrics and so unusual. He had his own interpretation of all these songs. And it was, he was beautiful. I remember those records, boy. And, of course, uh, you know, the, the police. Sting just writes a great song. And when we saw them, you know, Sting was you know, bouncing around the stage like he was on a pogo stick. to watch and of course I had a, an unusual experience with the Carpenters I signed the Carpenters and um, on my iPod I have the Carpenters uh -huh. I have Sting and then I have uh, hold on a second I have Cat Stevens on my iPod oh yeah you got a lot of my money man oh, well, you got a lot uh, of my I'm money not, well you know in uh, 1960 this is an interesting story if you want to hear this story go tell this me in 1966, uh, seven, I was doing a special for NBC. Jack Haley Jr. was uh, directing. He said, why don't you sing a song? I said, well, I, if, I, if I can find the right song, I'll give it a go. So you know, I go through my Rolodex, and I call Bert Bacharach. I said, Bert, is there a song that you have that you think I could handle, that you have tucked away in your drawer someplace, or you find yourself whistling in the morning or, you know, it's a, a, a tune that haunts you. Well, three days later, he sent me This Girl's In Love With You. Sure. You see this guy This guy's in love with you Yes, I'm in love Who looks at you the way I do when I watched the video this morning. Of what? Of you singing the song. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and you saw my ex-wife then. That That's was, your ex-wife, that, yeah. sure. Cute, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
record the song. I go, I fly to New York so Hal David, Hal uh, David would change the, uh, you know, the, the lyric to suit me. As I'm walking out of Hal's door, I said, Hal, is there a song that you think I might be able to handle? Or a song that you have tucked away in the drawer, the same yarn I gave Bert. Two days later, he sent me close to you. I recorded it in the studio. I'm, I'm listening to the playback, and my engineer friend, Larry Levine, rest his soul, looked at me and says, man, you sound terrible singing this song. <laughs> Forget it. And I lost my confidence. I put that thing in the drawer. When I signed the Carpenters in uh, 1970, they had an album that didn't sell. I mean, they, the first album was zero. And people at my Describe own. the first album. Why did the first well, album? It just, was it too reliant on Richard Carpenter? No, no. It has, had Karen, but it was very soft. It was very delicate and very... It wasn't really radio-friendly. Got it. Uh, so a year later, I gave him Close to You. They recorded it, and it was really light again. I said, this, we, need, we need a little bit more energy on this one, because Karen thought she was a drummer. I mean, she, and she played drums, and she was good. But she wanted to record, and I, when I listened to the recording, I said, no, it's a little too, too light, you know, we need some more oomph. They recorded it again, and it still wasn't quite there. And so finally we got the, uh, the wrecking crew. I don't know if you know that name. Those are these guys that did most of the sessions in L.A. They held Hal Blaine on drums and Tommy Tedesco on guitar and Carol Kay. The third recording was the charm. Why do stars fall down from the sky? Every time you walk by Just like me They long to be close to you What's the difference? How do they get there? For you as a person who has this ear, this gift, something happens for you, like an alchemy, where you just go, that's it, they got it. Well, yeah, you How know. How do they get there? How do you help them get there? Or do well, you? you? You try to flag them down to the runway, you know. That's what we did with most of our artists. You know, we didn't try to sign the the beat of the week. We tried to get, you know, the, like I was saying, the Cat Stevens and the artists we, we chose were artists that just had their own little identity, which we loved. Uh, and the Carpenters had that. I mean, I signed them because it wasn't the type of music that I normally listened to, but they were so sincere about it. Yeah. They were so passionate about the music. Unapologetic. That, oh, beautiful. Yeah. One of the most clarion voices uh, I've ever heard in my life. Well, when I heard the original tape, you know, the, uh, and the original tape was presented to me like, Psst, buddy, do you want to hear a tape? You know, and somebody handed me a tape through the gates at A&M, and I sat down in my a couch at uh, in my office at A&M and I did what I usually do put on the tape the speakers were on the floor about 10 feet in front of me closed my eyes and it felt like Karen's voice was sitting right next to me on the on the couch so I was just really intrigued to meet them and when I did I just realized this is the real deal so you build this big company you know you got a, you got a, you got a great record mm-hmm. company you and Jerry and then the time comes, and, and aside from uh, deal-making and aside from, uh, you know, Polygram making it well worth your while, what was it like in terms of the decision to let it go and to sell the company? Well, I felt something coming. I felt the uh, music file sharing. and Something just, just felt like the time is right. It was tough. What for, year was that? Well, in, in 1990. Most of these companies were, were run by these big corporations, and, you know, they were throwing millions and millions of dollars around for, for new artists. And we felt that, you know, you, you make one mistake at our size and, and then you, your, your ship is sinking. So we just thought it was, it was time. 
And originally, we were just going to sell 49%, which uh, we held on to for a long time. And then they said, well, we'd like to gobble the whole thing. And I thought, well, what can I do to throw in a little something? I'd like my catalog back. Herb Alpert, Tijuana Brass, and Herb Alpert single catalog plus Lonnie Hall's catalog. And I got it. Did you? <laughs> I mean, that's what all artists crave, right? Yeah. Is to control their own music. I, mean, I, I like, wanted it back, and they agreed to it. We signed the contract. And, and you made the deal and sold the company Yeah. to them. Hear what Herb Alpert did next after this break. There's something about being an artist, being a musician, being a painter, being a sculptor. When you're doing it, you're in the exact moment of your life. <laughs> I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, real conversations with artists, writers, policymakers, and performers. It's where I find out why people do what they do. Welcome to Confession. <laughs> I'm Father Al. What's on your mind, Kristen? I've done a lot of things. <laughs> where would a person hear this if a person wanted to hear this? You can listen to other episodes at heresthething.org. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, back with Herb Alpert. Having sold A&M records for a staggering sum, Herb Alpert can pretty much do whatever he wants. You might think this is the point in the story where this former record producer takes his cut, finds a nice corner of the world to build his castle, and relaxes with some headphones on. Not Herb Alpert. I started painting in 1970. I'm not a Sunday painter. I'm not a Sunday artist. I do it every day. You know, traveling in the 60s with the Tijuana Brass around the world, I used to go to museums, and I'd go to the modern art section for whatever reason. It, it just appealed to me. And, you know, I see these paintings, uh, you know, like a black painting with a purple dot or something hanging on the wall, and I think, hmm, let me try something like that. Yeah. I wasn't doing it to think uh, something would come of it. I'll tell you what's great, and I'm, I know, Alec, you know about this. It's just there's something about being an artist, being a musician, being a painter, being a sculptor. When you're doing it, you're in the exact moment of your life. <laughs> and that's rare, you know? When you're not in that mode, you're, you're thinking about yesterday or tomorrow or some other hazerai that really doesn't make any yeah. sense. But when you're doing it, man, it just feels so right on the moment. I feel that way when I'm on my boat. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. The, well, cool. I don't paint, and I don't. I wish I could paint. Uh-huh. Well, you should try it. I mean, when I started painting, I painted like a monkey. You know, I was just, I squeezed some paint on a canvas and moved it around. With yeah, like my, a kid. Yeah. You had no training. I, no training. I didn't know what I was doing. But I think there's an advantage to that. I think when you're an amateur and you're just fooling around, you have infinite possibilities. You know, if you go to a professional, they'll tell you what not to do and what to do and how to do it and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know about that. I just did whatever. I'm always going for a feel. You know, it's, it's, I do that in music and sculpting and painting. It's like I'm not looking for something that's going to, uh, you know, excite my eyes. I want something that excites my soul, you know, yeah. something that really resonates. I'm assuming there's no preference between paint and canvas and sculpture for you. You enjoy them both equally. I do. I got a copy from uh, your office of the Black Totems exhibit and the work you've done. Now, these are obviously immense pieces. They're enormous they're, they're pieces. They're 18-footers uh, in bronze. And they and are these exclusively for people who have cliffside homes in Malibu with uh, acres of land? I don't not know really. What... <laughs> I'm not interested in really selling. Uh, you no, know. I know. I'm just saying they're big. They're big. Yeah, they're huge. I, I think of my homes in New York and on Long Island. I would be interested in buying the lower four feet of this one. <laughs> if we could cut this into sections, actually, that would be kind of that would work quite well for me. Oh, I right. don't have 18 feet in Manhattan. I'm afraid <laughs> to say, but they're absolutely stunning. What is music for you now? I know that's the the ultimate cliched question, but how do you how do you view the music world now beyond zeros and ones and the digital and everything? You must be sitting home, and sometimes you sit there and go, "Wow, that sounds great. I really dig that." Well, you know, I have really varied tastes. So uh, I love classical music. I love, you know, listening to Ravel. Who are your favorite composers? Ravel. Ravel. Yeah, I love Ravel. I mean, actually, Ravel taught me a lesson. Actually, I was going to SC for a a few moments. I was in the orchestra there. And they were playing um, pictures at an exhibition. And I was in the orchestra playing that. The Mussorgsky. Yeah, Mussorgsky wrote it. Ravel uh, arranged it. Arranged it. Hmm, Good for you. And uh, they were playing the last one of Great Gate of Kiev. You know, and I was like so intrigued with the sound of the orchestra. I was leaning forward, listening to everybody, and it sounded like wow, it's like natural stereo. And I forgot to come in. <laughs> I forgot to come in on my part. Right at that moment, I thought, hey, you know, 
This isn't for me. What I really want to do is just close my eyes and play. I love Miles Davis. I love Louis Armstrong. I love those guys that just, you know, create. I want to try doing that. And so I started, you know, working on jazz, which is a very specific language. I mean, just because you want to play jazz doesn't mean you can play jazz. Had you been asked to score a lot of films? Did you pass up? You must have been asked to score well, tons I of did, films. I did the title song of uh, Casino, Royale. Casino Royale with Burt Backrack, but that was about it. No, yep. I don't think that's my thing. I, I, I don't. I, I don't think you I, didn't feel I, it. I didn't feel it. I you would have been great at that. I uh, I maybe been. my wife thinks I should still, you know, pursue that. But you know, I had an experience. This is like a little different uh, aside. But uh, I was in the studio recording the. Um, Going Places album. And the brass was already going crazy. I mean, we were selling, you know. We it was were, going well. Yeah, it was going well. <laughs> and I get a call from my partner. I said, we, and the album wasn't finished yet. I get a call from Jerry and he says, we just have advanced orders of a million four hundred thousand. And I got depressed. Felt like, gee, you know, if people love the album, buy it. If you don't, you know, that's a, I just, it was a strange feeling. I, I, why? I, I know it sounds a little... But why? I just didn't want to be prejudged. I mean, I, I wanted people to listen to the album, hear right. it, and, and if they liked it, buy it. Purity so, is what you seem yeah, to be after. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to be too optimistic, no, but I mean, yeah, I was looking for that real ride. Until we find a better word, we'll say purity. Okay. But, you know, I was looking for that ride. Yeah. You like it, buy it. I love yeah. it. Where did you meet your second wife? Okay. Who you're obviously madly in love with. Yeah, so you don't know that story. All right. Let's hear it. This is good. So, you know... Uh, Musicians in love is always in, a good story. In 1966, uh, I auditioned uh, Brazil 66, Sergio Mendes. Sergio Mendes. Brazil 66. Lonnie was the lead singer. Jerry and I signed them to a long-term contract. This was when the brass was really cooking. And we hired them to open the show for us. So they were playing for 18,000 people at a time. Lonnie and I became friends. We were just really good friends. She's very unusual. She's from Chicago. She can sing in Portuguese like a, like a native. Beautiful voice. And, um, and she loves music. Oh, do, you have, do you have a similar kind of a, I don't want to say passion for music, but do you have a similar ethic for music? Is she? Oh, completely. She loves jazz. She loves you know, all, all kinds of music, but... Uh, we are really the opposites, you know. She's How? A, well, uh, I'm really quiet. I'm really kind of like a low key type of guy. Yeah. She's more, you know, has more energy and more zip zap. More and, outgoing. Yeah, more outgoing. Who makes the dinner reservations out there in, in California for you? Who's who's picking the restaurants? Your wife. <laughs> no, she doesn't. I do that. You, oh, do you really? Yeah. I just want to look at my wife and I want to go, whatever you say, baby. What do you, what do you want to have? You want Indian food? You got it, baby. I don't want to have to make those decisions. I got other stuff I got to think about. Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of mutual with us. I mean, it is. she's, um, you know, I met her at a time and we became friendly and she was able to identify my neurosis. <laughs> Which is what? Well, you know, at the time I was going through a divorce and I couldn't play the horn. How did that manifest itself? Well, took a trip to Europe. Uh, we had a little time off. When I got back, we had some obligations to go back to Europe and do some concerts. And I had like two or three weeks to get back in shape and I just couldn't do it. I, my, my tongue wouldn't go in the right place. I was all bottled up. I was stiff. My neck was tight couldn't make a sound out of the horn. It was really painful. You know, I was uh, 
really upset about the divorce. Yeah. And I had, uh, you know, a bottle of Melanta at my side there. Yeah. <laughs> so, you were, you were unhappy. Of, there was a hole in the stomach, you know, and I, yeah. I just wasn't happening. And I just couldn't execute. I couldn't play the whole How long did that last? Oh, it lasted for years. Really? I, yeah, it did. It. I mean, it, it finally wound down. What years were those? Down. Well, 1969, 70, 71, 72. So right after you have this huge crest of the greatest score as a, as a performer of your life, you kind of crash and you don't, you literally didn't play? Well, I played, but it was painful. I, I had an experience in Germany. I did, you know, had this obligation to play uh, these concerts in Europe. I was in Germany, in Frankfurt, and I was on the stage painfully playing, and all of a sudden I had this out-of-body experience. All of a sudden I was in the third row looking at me. You know, I was thinking to myself, well, gee, this guy is usually pretty comfortable on the stage, but when he's, you know, off the stage and he's in a in a room of, uh, you know, at a party or whatever, he's totally out of control, which I felt I was at the time. I said, when I get back to Los Angeles after this series of concerts, I'm going to either throw this horn away, sell A&M, do whatever. I, I just want to find out who I am and why I'm here. I mean, everybody's looking for the same thing, I think, a life of purpose and meaning. I mean, yeah. Without that, what else is there? Yeah. Luckily... I, I met a teacher in New York here. His name was Carmine Caruso. He played violin. He played saxophone. He didn't play trumpet, but he taught a lot of trumpet players. He likened the musician to an athlete, and you had to sink your body muscles to rhythm. And over a period of time, I, I just kind of unwound this terrible problem I had. How long did it take? It took, uh, before I was really comfortable, probably uh, eight years. Really? Yeah. Did you do that when you started painting? Well, no, that's an interesting question. You know, but you said you started painting since 1970. Yeah, I did. And, and you started to lose your mojo horn-wise in 69. Yeah, right. Did, you, did painting and sculpting come into your life as you found you didn't want to play the horn? Well, sculpting came in later. Painting was uh, a big relief. You had to have somewhere to put that energy. Exactly. Um... It was a rough period for me. I, 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 well, yeah. I've been there, man. Yeah, yeah. I've been there. I, and mine is a result of a divorce, too, you know. And not like I thought I needed to be, to stay in that marriage, but it was the way that those things end sometimes. Oh, yeah. You, you no, just sit there and go, you know, like, this is not Yeah, not what I planned it. Well, this is not what I bargained for at all, man. <laughs> like, we can, well, let's hit rewind here and go back <laughs> and try to figure this out, man. And hit delete. <laughs> yeah, let's, we got we to we do this again. Let's, when did you marry your current wife? What year? 74. So 74. Yeah. So during this time, uh-huh. there's years of you not feeling great, and yeah. then you meet her, and you meet this woman who's obviously the love of your life. Right. But at, at the same time, I was still playing. I was, sure. Like I said, I was playing. The You're forcing I, yourself to play. Well, forcing myself. In 74, we had a command performance for the Queen of England. We played uh, We played there, and the band sounded— Do you want a brass? Yeah. yeah. band sounded great, and then— Meet uh, Prince Charles, who said, "Oh, I have all your records in the in the den." You know, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't picture the den. Yeah, <laughs> met the Queen, very lovely, nice smile. Uh, this was in 1974. I was feeling pretty puffed up. I felt good about that. So, go out the back door, and there were th- hundreds and hundreds of people there, just waiting for the various artists that were on the show. And this, as I'm walking through the crowd, I hear these two ladies talking. I don't know that chap. Who was that chap? And and her friend said, I think that's Sergio Mendez. (laughs) After feeling so good. I got to get over here more often, man. I got to get these people straightened out. They don't know me from Sergio Mendez. Yeah. 
So that well, that's why I think that's a great thing that you're someone who you weren't feeling all that great at that time in your life, but you fooled the king and the queen of England, man. They, uh, they, they, I didn't fool them. The band sounded no, good. No, I'm but, just saying that you, you, got, you got it done. Yeah, but you know, there's something about, uh, you know, when you're... Uh, you're good at something. You can you can fake it, and 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 nobody really it. knows. You know? Know. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, now for you, who's a horn player that you take your hat off? Who's one? Just give me one. You well, just I used mean, to just really dug listening to. Oh, uh, Miles Davis. I I love Miles. You know, Miles was the real thing. Miles. Why? Was, well, because he was completely authentic. Right. He was just uh, playing the music that was coming out of him. Uh, no compromise. He, he understood space. You know, the, 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 the silence that happens between the notes. You know, he understood that. And I think he was uh, the, the key you know, you know, jazz musician of the 20th century. I've met some really incredible jazz musicians in my day, and each one has their own little take on how to do it. Yeah. Stan Getz was like a brother to me. Yeah. I produced two albums with Stan, and he played this one song that was just, man, goosebumps were flying up my back. And I said, man, what are you thinking when you're playing? And he says, well, I, I think like I'm in front of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and I'm davening. <laughs> really? <laughs> Stan, man. Yeah. Oh, he was great, man. I love this guy. He wore his stuff right close to the surface. I had an experience with Getz where, you know, I did these albums and, I, and he said, can I do anything for you? I said, yeah, man, Give me. how about giving me some bebop lessons? He says, sure. He says, how, how honest do you want me to be? I said, just... Because I'm just trying to get up to my own water level. I didn't play with Charlie Parker like you did. I just want to see how far I can take this thing. He says, fine. I'm in my studio at home, and he's sitting down. I said, you think for one, I should work on the 251 chords in every key, which is page one. They teach at Berkeley. I mean, that's how they, you know, they start this thing. 251 is in all pop songs. It's just one of those things. I said, do you think I should work on this in every key? The two five one chords, you know what he said? What's that? <laughs> he didn't think like that. I mean, those old timers didn't play off of that shit that they're teaching at school, you know. What do you think made Sinatra Sinatra? Oh man, very musical. He really was smart. He was grateful to the songwriters. Oh yeah, and the musicians oh, whom he man. knew they made him. Oh, he was, he, he brought was, what he brought, but he was a cut above, man. The guy was he was magic. And plus, the sound in his voice was beautiful. His timing, but I learned a great lesson. You know, when things started happening for me, my ex-wife was uh, friends with Nancy Sinatra, and and I met Frank, and I stayed at his house, and then we flew to uh, Las Vegas. Anyway, after the show, Frank comes up to me. He says, you want to play some Baccarat? I said, I don't know how to play, but I'll go with you. He sits down at the Baccarat table. I'm, I'm standing behind him. And in 20 minutes, he must have won around $27,000, dollars I don't know. And Nancy was standing right next to me. So every time he won a pot, he'd throw off like 10 $100 bills to Nancy. So she had this pile. It looked like a bowling ball in her hands of... of, of 
$100 bills. And so Frank gets up abruptly, and he he just leaves, you know. And Nancy looks at me and says, I hear Herbie, go take some of this and go gamble. And I looked at this pile. I said, what do you mean take some? You, you want me to take a half a pound? You want? What are you talking about? Yeah. And I realized at that point, man, I, I'm never going to treat money like that. I'm going to, you know, honor it in a, a whole different way. It's not yeah. going to be that... Uh, Frivolous. Herb Alpert established the Herb Alpert Foundation in the 1980s, and he's been giving away money ever since. In 2007, he gave $30 million to form the Herb Alpert School of Music at UCLA. I love music. I think music needs to survive. I think jazz needs to survive. It's a great American legacy. It's such an important ingredient for a kid's health, you know, and I think through that they learn discipline, which can help them in the academics, so it's just a natural. It should be a core subject. Do you teach? Do you go over there and guest teach and so forth? No, I don't, but I, you know, <laughs> I'm not, that's really not my strong suit. I think they would be very happy for you to show up, though, wouldn't they? Well, they do. Isn't that your great gift? They just have to play, and it's all I, I there. I think my great gift is that I have my own personality on the horn. A lot of musicians are trying to track Miles Davis or try to track Charlie Parker or try to play like. You know, I'm just trying to play like myself, and that's, uh, I think, what everybody should be going for, their only unique voice. It's just been, been a nice ride. I feel thankful. Herb Alpert continues to paint, create sculptures, and, of course, make music. This is Alpert and his wife, singer Lonnie Hall. Just another afternoon on the sidewalks of London All the gray and rainy days run together Hidden in the streets of stone Suddenly I'm not alone I feel you I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo with support from Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, and Monica Hopkins. Thanks to Trey Kay and Lou Olkowski. Wrap yourself around my heart. Let me feel you. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.